This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Several weeks ago on this show, we were chatting with Hamilton's medical officer of health about safe injection sites. Now, some of you are going to agree with the concept, some won't. But the basic premise is that safe places with trained medical professionals supervising are provided for intravenous drug users to take their hits and the chances then of fatal overdoses of opioids and other drugs would be diminished. That is the theory, that's the thought behind it, that's the practice in other places. And again, you can agree with this idea as a smart one or you can believe this endorses drug use. That's a discussion for a different day. What we're going to talk about today is a difficulty, it seems, that has arisen here in Hamilton with making this happen. Because back when we had that chat with the medical officer of health, we talked about where this might happen. And even though there might be a desire for a place like this, not everyone is going to want to have the city's drug users calling their neighborhood home. The NIMBY effect. Everyone knows about it. Well, it turns out it seems not anybody really wants this. Finding a location has been unsuccessful so far. So sometime in the next few weeks, my next guest will be bringing forward a motion to have public hospitals pick up the slack. Sam Marula is a counselor for Ward 4. He joins us now. Sam, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. So have I got this right that right now it has been a challenge uh, as in a completely no-go challenge to find a place that would take on a safe injection site? The uh, challenge that we're faced with is that there isn't, it's not so much a NIMBY scenario where there are neighbors against a project. It's about landlords accepting whatever they feel might be a liability associated with the project. So in working with uh, Councillor Farr and, my, and, and looking at the issue, it makes perfect sense and there's a significant synergy between the existing hospitals in our core, that being St. Joe's and General, Ho- and General Hospital, and, and, and ensuring that we, we can find a location within the hospital itself. It doesn't require much space. And what better place to have the program than an actual hospital where you have a built-in medical backup. And that all, that does make an awful lot of sense. Uh, that said, has there been any indication at this point that the province wants to get in on this, or are they looking for the city to still cover the cost of this? Oh, this is a provincial it uh, is. program. So the yes, hospital would is. be an obvious one then? Hence, yeah, hence the reason why we're looking at that. So uh, it is provincially funded, it's a provincial program, and only authorized as a result of the province and their legislation. So um, they were asking us to our public health department, which is the majority of public health department is funded uh, by by the province, in searching out a location, um, a centralized location on a bus route, and that exists, and exists within their own provincially funded hospitals. Hence the reason why we're bringing forward the, uh, the motion. How long has the city actually been looking, if you know? How long has the city been looking for a place right now? It's been, uh, it's been some time. Uh, it's been just under a year, I believe. And as I understand, that it, it's to the point that you say it's landlords, it's not the people. Uh, even social agencies, yeah. some of them, have been, maybe they're landlords, maybe them, but unwilling to step into this. I mean, it's a, it is a dicey thing. It's a challenging thing. It's You're talking about people that obviously need help, but are... Uh, not necessarily people that, uh, with that issue, with what you're doing, that is going to be an easy thing to deal with. Uh, again, there are, ver- I guess, many variables that contribute to people uh, not wanting to perhaps take on the liability or perceived liability. The, the reality is we have a solution. So rather than us focusing on the fact that we can't find a landlord to accept it, I think we should focus in on the issue that we do have a solution built into our existing hospitals, which are centrally located 
on a bus route and meets all the criteria of what the province set out for us to, uh, to do in searching out a location. What they failed to realize when they did that was realize they have a location already, and that is the provincially funded hospitals. Is there any danger with having uh, people who are there for injections, for drug injections, intravenous drug injections, around the hospital, though, where there are a lot of other people? That, that, this is going to be a concern, Sam, and, and I mean, it's, it is a, a reality that people will be, I think, fearful until they find out otherwise uh, to be in that area. Is there any concern with having these people milling around, waiting for their injections or following their injections around people who are going in to have a baby or get a broken arm done or whatever else? Are there, are there concerns there? It's a medically oriented procedure or, or process and program, and there's no better place to do a medical a procedure or a program than a medically oriented hospital. Um, so at the end of the day, it actually helps take away from the stigma as well. It probably attracts more users, and, that's, and that will tie into more treatment and prevent um, less deaths associated because you have an on-site emergency team. Uh, it makes perfect sense to be located in the hospital, hence the reason why we're ready in the forward. To the best of your knowledge, are there other cities that do this across the country? Because, I mean, Vancouver has safe injection sites. I don't know all the places, but are there other places that use hospitals for this? I don't know. I don't, okay. I, don't I really don't know. Because I, I haven't heard of it before, and as you say, when you mention it, it seems to be a logical thing and then as I uh, when I look at the Vancouver situation they don't have that I, I'm I'm just wondering why it would not be such an obvious one that people would just say yeah sure okay that's that's the place to do it sometimes the most obvious solutions are the ones <laughs> ignored <laughs> but uh, I mean it's not even something yet Hamilton is still kind of on the forefront of this though isn't it we still don't even have tons of these around the country there are some places I say Vancouver has it I think there's one or two others this is still Toronto, something Toronto, Toronto does. Montreal they've been advanced too but we're still kind of at the forefront of trying to figure this out. We we're still yeah. kind of the trailblazers in some ways. Uh, particularly in this uh, initiative, uh, I think uh, I think most other cities will will accept the program more so, being that uh, it's located within a medically supervised hospital. I, it, it just makes so much sense that it, it, that it's actually so obvious. It's amazing how the obvious can be sometimes uh, ignored. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Back on The Scott Radley Show it, with Sam Marula. We're chatting about uh, safe injection sites in the city and the difficulty in finding them and a possible solution for finding them is going to be brought forward at City Council. Uh, Council Marula, when actually will this be coming forward? Is it in the next couple days or next few weeks, or when is this plan to raise this idea? My understanding is that it's uh, coming to GIC, which will be... I believe, on Wednesday. Okay, so very, very soon. You mentioned last segment, uh, right off the bat, you mentioned the liability, and this is the other thing that is a is an interesting part of this. Does any of the liability, if, an, if a safe injection site is in the city, even if it's at a provincial place like a hospital, does any of the liability fall onto the city? No, it's a provincially... Municipalities are a creation of the province. So we have no constitutional bearing. We only exist because the province allows us to, uh, and not too dissimilar to the fact that we couldn't actually have this program if the province didn't allow us to have the program. So the liability is always with the province, regardless of what the city does, because uh, we are a creation of the province. Because as you mentioned, I mean, the landlords have talked about liability, and I think people can probably understand some of their 
skittishness about this. If someone goes to a safe injection site, and I don't know if this has ever happened, maybe this is just a creation of imagination, but if someone goes to a safe injection site and leaves and something bad happens, whether they get injured or they were to do something, we know how liability, we know how people are willing to sue. You end up in this situation where maybe you, you find yourself in a problem. So again, having that on the province rather than the city would be ideal. And it is, uh, but again, we could be named in a lawsuit whether it's merited or not, and, and we are uh, quite often <laughs> because we, of all the programs. We, we provide over 260 programs, right? So uh, at the end of the day, we let the judges and the courts and, and the lawyers deal with, with that aspect. But the reality is that the program itself is a provincial program, so the focus and target would be the province. Okay, policing, however, though, and this is this is the other part that has been raised on this, and policing is a uh, something that you look after. Uh, as the medical officer... Not directly, health, though. Not directly. Not directly. Uh, but you have the Hamilton Police Service, which is going to be looking if, and wherever this happens, they would ultimately be responsible if something happened in the city. And as the medical officer of health explained, these people bring their own... The, the, the drugs are not provided at the hospital or at no. the injection site. They bring their own. And so the, the, the tricky part here is that you have people who are going to be hanging around this safe injection site. Well, it has been raised other places in Vancouver, as I say, we're reading this as well, that if you know that the users are going to be hanging out in a certain place, you are necessarily going to draw the people who would provide them with their drugs to that area. And this has the potential, I think you would probably acknowledge, has the potential, if you don't handle it right, to end up being an area that has problems. If you suddenly have a lot of drug users and a lot of their dealers there, you have to handle that with some pretty effective policing. I see it as an opportunity to arrest uh, the dealers. Uh, if, frankly, if they want to take the bait and uh, perform that um, they're, they're selling at these locations in a hospital, then they're just setting themselves up for being arrested. The, the target won't be the user. The target will be the dealer and always should be. Uh, I think treatment should be the primary objective for the user and enforcement for, for the dealer. Um, so if they're going to be um, known as some of the dumbest criminals around, uh, <laughs> then I invite them. And I, and I agree with you 100% on that. The, 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 the tough part about that is if the police were to start moving in and arresting people near the safe injection sites, is that not going to chase some of the people you want coming to the safe injection sites away, worrying they're going to be arrested as well? It'd be, it, as I say, it requires... Again, we're dealing with the dealers, not the users. So I'm saying that yeah. the users wouldn't be targeted, but dealers should definitely be aggressively targeted. Would this require from the city, though, as you've made very clear, this is a provincial uh, jurisdiction, would this require work from the city, public relations-wise, public explanation-wise, to convince, to mollify people who live near the hospitals that this is not going to affect them? Or do you think people are... We've already done all that. See, we've already approved the site and and the the public consultation component. Uh, It was just we hadn't hadn't, uh, found a location yet, per se, but we've gone through the exercise of whether or not the program is merited. Uh, what we hadn't done was just to select a site based on the parameters that we established. So I, I think most people would feel relieved um, that this particular operation would be within a hospital as opposed to, let's say, next door to a school or next door 100%. to a variety store. No, 100%, yeah, so 100% on that. But there are still neighbors who live around a hospital. Would they require uh, assuring or do you think that people are ready for this right now? But with the existing security within the hospital, it's it's the ideal location for it. 
it's no, there's no other location that's better when dealing from a public safety component, not only for the public, but also for the individual user and also policing the dealers. Um, it, it's quite visible, as you know, in a hospital with built-in security. Um, you can't find a better location. Councillor Sam Marula, again, the, the proposal, the motion will be brought forward at the GIC probably on Wednesday. Uh, listen, really appreciate the time and the explanation today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, no problem. Likewise. This is, um, this is an idea that is obviously going to, uh, I, I would think this is something that's going to be uh, agreed to by many of the councillors. What better place than a hospital, quite frankly? What better place than a facility that is designed for medical conditions for medical circumstances than to have medical professionals around to do this. The, the, the issue, and I, I hear what Councillor Marula says, the issue is going to be maybe, if there's any dispute on this, if there's any concern about this, A, is there the, are the facilities available in the hospital, and B, will those around the hospitals be happy with this? In Vancouver, regardless of where they tried to put the injection sites, neighbours were upset. We will see. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. The Hamilton Bulldogs play their first home game of the Ontario Hockey League finals tonight, starting just a few minutes down at First Ontario Centre. They came home from the weekend, tied 1-1 with the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. Uh, some will think this is a big surprise because in some corners they had been seen as huge underdogs. Um... Regardless whether they are underdogs or not, they are, as I say, they're tied 1-1. They're right in the middle of this. And what makes this so unique tonight is how long it's been. The last time an OHL final was played in Hamilton was 1978, 40 years ago, four decades ago since this city had an OHL team in the finals. As my colleague at the Spec, Terry Pekoski, wrote today, the average age of Hamiltonians, according to the last census, is 41, meaning roughly half of the folks in the city weren't even alive the last time an OHL finals was played here. That was with the Hamilton Fin Cups. They lost in 1978. They had won it two years earlier. Well, the guy who has built this year's, this generation's version of the team is Steve Steos. He's the general manager and he's the president of the Bulldogs. He joins me now. Steve, thanks for doing this. Anytime, Scott. I keep thinking of... Um, of all the people who weren't alive, as I was just saying, for that last team, and I don't really count you in that, but you were two and a half, about to turn three uh, that time. You were you were a young guy. You can't really have remembered much about the Fin Cups either, can you? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> I mean, the history of the Fin Cups is uh, mostly through stories that I've talked to through hockey people here in Hamilton and uh, and what I've read on the team. So yeah, I don't uh, I don't recall the team. But, it is, I mean, it has been a long, long time, and I know that we haven't had a team here all through that stretch, but, boy, it's, it's hard to imagine it's been 40 years since Hamilton hosted an OHL final game. Uh, yeah, it certainly is, and that just brings, I think, a little bit more excitement to, to what we're doing here uh, with the Bulldogs franchise. And I uh, couldn't be more pleased to be part of, a, part of putting together a, a product and a group of young men that uh, are making our city proud. I mean, this is... Uh, the energy is uh, incredible, uh, you know, and I know our, our, our players speak to it all the time, and uh, the energy that our fans bring into into the arena at home is uh, it could be a determining factor in the series. Well, and look, congratulations go to you as well, because it is, uh, it is pretty remarkable that a team that missed the playoffs three years ago is in the finals now, and that's, uh, that is, that's an impressive feat to have been able to do that, Steve. Well, thank you, but it's, uh, you know, I mean, you know, the credit goes to, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously, I, I, I appreciate 
that. Uh, but you know, the people that that are in place here uh, share the same passion, and that was part of you know when I was looking at building this thing, they need to share the same passion for uh, not only the game of hockey, but uh, have the same beliefs, morals, and uh, the same fabric that I do and uh, wanting to do this the right way. And, um, you know, it's uh, a credit to them, you know, from our front office staff to our ticketing uh, staff, right through to the hockey ops, we all share a common goal. And, uh, and that's the, to make sure that we bring, uh, we bring, we represent Hamilton in the right way, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say that we've been able to do that. Um, you know, in uh, in a short period of time, uh, we'll, we'll continue to build on this franchise after this. But right now, we're just focused on winning an OHL championship. One of your assistant coaches, Dave Matzos, was in the paper the other day, and he was saying that the OHL and then eventually moving on to the Memorial Cup is it potentially is one of the hardest trophies in sports to win. And I, you know, I mentioned that to a couple of people, and a few of them rolled their eyes a little bit because it's not the Stanley Cup, it's not the World Cup. You, however, I mean, you've got an interesting perspective on this, though, because you played junior hockey in the OHL. You played for the Niagara Falls Thunder. I got to the semifinals twice, never actually got to this point, never got to win a championship. I'm guessing that you would take some issue with those who would say, no, this isn't that hard to win. This is, this is, this is a reasonably easy trophy to win. I, I would guess that you would have a difference of opinion with them. I would. I'm living on both sides of this, I got to a Stanley Cup final uh, and uh, you know, like you said, two semifinals, the M's Division finals is what it was called back then. Um, you know, it's it, the difficulty is in timing this and getting the right people here at the right age. Uh, you know, there's a, a little, there, there's challenges managing at every level. Um, uh, you know, I mean, in national hockey, you're dealing with salary caps and expiring contracts and uh, that that sort of thing. But in, in the OHL, you bring players in, you have a draft class that you you really like, and you try and build around that and you groom them to be, um, you know, uh, to be able to get to this level. Um, but you know, in saying that it doesn't happen by accident and, uh, this is where I won't be so humble because my coaching staff has done a tremendous job. These players are 100% committed, our training staff, everybody on uh, that, that's involved in this, you can't get to this championship, uh, series without having everybody, uh, all on board. And, uh, the challenge in junior hockey is, uh, we've had these players for three to five years and then they're moving on. You hadn't been, I mean, you've only been retired for what, from the NHL for five years, six years, seven years? I mean, it's not that long that you've been out of the game. Uh, You had not been a general manager before you took over here. How did you learn to do this? I mean, was there somebody that you watched very closely along the way, or was this trial and error and feeling your way? How does a guy who's never had this role do this and do it successfully? It's a good question. I don't. Uh, it's. It's. My mind works in a different way. We really do stay focused. It's such a cliche, but it's. We, we stay focused on the day to day. I mean, we have a vision. Uh, we have an understanding of where we are long term, but we certainly put in a lot of work day to day, and we're disciplined to that. And uh, um, I guess to answer your question, I've been around tremendous hockey people throughout my career as a player in player development. You know, um, I certainly have good relationships. I talk to a lot of people. There's no, uh, you know, I talk to people that I know that are general managers in the National Hockey League that I lean on at, at times, but certainly it's different managing uh, at, at each level. But I think I've taken a lot from each and one of these individuals who have had success. Um, I know there's no there's no blueprint to, to follow. That is what I found, but there's certain 
things that uh, some commonalities between all these different general managers and winning teams and, and winning environments. But uh, you've heard me use the word culture quite a bit. Uh, you heard me use the word character quite a bit. And uh, that is the sort of the base kind of personality or things that we're looking for within our people here. Um, and uh, when you have good people involved that share that same passion, uh, you you know, really special things can happen. And, uh, you know, I'm fortunate to be in this situation to be able to come in and not manage before and uh, and be able to put put a team together, put an organization together. It's been extremely rewarding. Um, and it has been a little bit of trial and error. We haven't made – every decision we've made hasn't been a good one, but certainly we take our time and think about it. We don't – I don't deal off of emotion. Um, you know, we calculate everything that we do here. Uh, but certainly create the right environment for, for our players and our coaches and everybody to, uh, that they can thrive in. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. First OHL championship game in this city in 40 years. Uh, Steve, you played, you mentioned before the break, you played in semifinals as a junior. You played in Stanley Cup final, a Stanley Cup final as a player. Now, we, everyone knows that's the greatest trophy in hockey. That's maybe the greatest trophy in sports. How different is it for you to be watching as an executive now in a championship, but watching it as opposed to being a player and being on the ice for a championship? It's, it's extremely difficult, to be quite honest. I mean, it's, uh, you know, when you're, if you're coaching or you're a player, you feel like you have uh, somewhat, some control over the game. But uh, at this point... Um, all I can do is, is you know, uh, mentor and lead from afar prior to games, after games, on days off, and try and just set the right message. Uh, but it's it's tough. I mean, it's emotional. These these players have uh, worked so hard to get to this situation, and uh, you, you just want the best for them. So it's it's a little different. I mean, it played in World Championships and, and, and won two gold medals. And as a player, there's intensity, there's butterflies, but then you can get out there and release that stress by, by actually – physically going out there and trying to have an impact on a game. But as a manager, you just have to sit back and, and cheer on and take notes and uh, hopefully continue to lead and keep your composure, uh, you know, after games to make sure the right messaging goes to the coaches and to the players. Is it a bit of a helpless feeling? Uh, for the most part, yes. Yeah, because you, you really, I mean, you, you're, you're – there's some things that you can do. I mean, we take notes and we want to make sure that we can get some messages to the coaching staff, whether it's in game or in between periods. Uh, but for the most part, it's we're on the periphery at this point. I mean, the uh, the amount of work that we put in in the off season through our draft, building up to this year at the trade deadline, um, that that was where we put in the work. That's where we had the biggest impact as a as a management staff. And then from there on. Uh, you know, it's up to the players and the coaches, but we're just hope, we're just hoping that uh, we sit back and we hope and we cheer and uh, and uh, hope for the best for our group. Well, let me ask you about that because you are during games, you're usually tucked away somewhere. We don't see you. So when something good happens, are you the fist pumping, high fiving Cam Neely type of general manager, or are you the Lou Lamorello, unconscious with your eyes open, never respond to anything kind of general manager? Uh, Way more like Cam Neely than I am Lou Lamorello, let's put it that way. <laughs> so if we saw... The intensity, the intensity of the player still is in me, and, uh, you know, there's there's emotion involved. And, and, again, I care so much for these players and this coaching staff, but I just want the best for them. Is it difficult at times... Again, you know, we've... 
I've talked to fighters before, boxers and, and, and mixed martial artists, and one of the things they say is when they get into a fight or if the fight has to be canceled for whatever reason right before, it's really difficult for them because they have all this energy, they have this, this competitive thing, and there's no outlet for them to be able to demonstrate it. So they're sitting there just geared up. Is that the same? What do you do after a game or during a game when you have all that competitive stuff going on and there's no outlet for you? What do you do with it? Deep breathing is what you do. <laughs> yeah, you know, you really, it's uh, its emotional. You yell, you cheer, you fist bump, you high five. Uh, uh, but uh, at the end of it, you gain your composure and you go down. And I have to, you know, continue to, uh, you know, from the from the periphery, have, have some leadership for this group as well. And uh, that's, but uh, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, we're playing an OHL championship here, and I'd rather be feeling these emotions than uh, sitting back and watching another other two teams go at it. So, uh, again, we're, it's, it's been rewarding up until this point. I have 100% belief in this group, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just been, it's been an incredible ride. And I know our fans, they, they deserve this. They, you know, our, our loyal fans that come into the building every night, um, are so pleased and they're so happy and they deserve this. They've been uh, they've been with us through the, uh, from the beginning. There's no question. This is uh, I don't even have to say this that you want to win this thing. But for for you to characterize this season as a success, does it require that you win the championship, or can you look at what's happened this season, regardless of what happens the last five games, and say, no, no, I'm I'm okay. This has been a successful season. Yeah, I don't think we'd ever be okay with it. Uh, obviously, we you know we put our minds to doing this when we didn't get the Hemp Memorial Cup bid. Um, that was in the back of my mind to know try and time this to feel if we had the right group and the timing was right for us to to jump in with both feet. And obviously, um, we made that commitment. Uh, the groups made that commitment, and here we are. So we're, all we were looking for was an opportunity, and uh, we have that right now. So uh, success, I think. You know, overall, I think, obviously, we've done a lot of good things here. I mean, not just with the team, but in the community and what we've been able to establish over the first few years here as an OHL franchise in Hamilton. I think we've brought a lot of civic pride to our city. I think we've brought a lot of, uh, you know, spotlights on Hamilton from uh, a Canadian Hockey League perspective and what we've been able to manage to do in a short period of time. Um, I think other organizations will try and emulate how we've done things so when you look at all those things certainly there's been success uh relative success i guess but to us you know the, the ultimate goal is to be playing in the memorial cup and uh um we have an opportunity right in front of us well you said you didn't know much about the hamilton fin cups the last team to play in a championship but you do have a direct connection to the fin cups i'm sure you know this that you played, you played for the niagara <laughs> falls thunder which had been the Steelhawks in hamilton which had been the branford alexander's which had been the Hamilton's Fin Cup. So there you go. You 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 played for the Fin Cups without even knowing it. Well, you so probably knew is, it. So does that classify me as an alumni? I would think so, and I think you should probably still get a ring. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's 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 stay focused on getting the ring the, uh, the good old fashioned way and doing it right now. Steve Steos, general manager and president of the Hamilton Bulldogs. They are about to face off down at First Ontario Center. Good luck the rest of the way, Steve. I appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I'm guessing, and I think it's probably it's a fair guess, that most of you have a favorite food. Most of you have something that, given your choice, that you would want your mom or your wife or your dad or your restaurant or whatever, the store, that you would want to go out and eat 
regularly? That there's something that you would put at the very top of your list? I mean, this is a common conversation, right? If you talk to someone, what's your favorite food? It's something that we all have. However, however, I want to talk for a couple of minutes about a guy named Don Gorski. Now, this name may actually be familiar to some of you because he was featured briefly in a movie. I'll tell you what movie in just a second. He was featured in a movie a while ago. Don Gorski is either a guy who has the most favorite food of anybody's favorite food, or he is a little special. <laughs> I'm not sure which one, because on Friday, Don Gorski from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, the, the pride of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, on Friday, Don Gorski, a 64-year-old retired prison guard, ate his 30,000th Big Mac of his life. Now, he's had one every day since 1972, except for eight days, he says. He has had a Big Mac every single day since 1972. There's a couple things about Don Gorski that concern me a little bit here. A, that anybody could like a Big Mac that much. I mean, it's a nice treat, but a Big Mac, 30,000 Big Macs is an awful lot of Big Macs. But I guess the one of the bigger questions I have is, who counts their hamburgers. Who actually keeps this? This is an odd thing. Is it not to have remembered to have started counting back in 1972? I mean, how do you know that you should start counting your Big Macs when you buy your first one so you could keep track? But anyway, Don Gorski, 30,000 Big Macs and always at the same McDonald's. I think the guy may be a slight bit obsessive compulsive. Always at the same McDonald's every day goes in, gets his 540 calorie, 28 gram of fat, 46 gram of carbohydrate, and 25 gram of protein burger because, well, because he loves, I would guess that's an obvious, he loves his Big Mac. This is a biggie for me, something I've been looking forward to, Gorski told the Fond du Lac reporter. Now, let's stop there for a second. If your life is driven around the consumption of, of a Big Mac, that you've been looking forward to hitting a target of Big Macs, again, might be time for a new hobby. I'm not entirely sure, but he says, I love the patties. I love the sauce. I can't get enough of it. Well, that is, that is very clear. That is very clear. Can you imagine eating anything? I mean, think of, again, your favorite food. I would probably say that mine would be steak. That would be at the top of the list. Surf and turf, maybe on special days, really special days. But could you imagine eating steak 30,000 days in a row? 30, since 1972. So we're now talking about 46 straight years of eating the same thing for dinner every single day. I don't know about you, but there is a, um, there is a point. I love ice cream as well. There is a point when I'm like, I need a day off of ice cream. I really... 46 straight years, minus eight days. I'd love to know what he ate on those eight days or what was wrong with him. He must have been sick or something. But you're saying to yourself, okay, this guy must be 700 pounds housebound and someone just brings him. No, no. He uh, he was in that movie. Now, if you're think, I, I mentioned a movie. If you're thinking, what movie was he in? Okay, he was in that movie, Super Size Me. Remember Super Size Me, the one where the guy tried to eat junk food and McDonald's for 30 straight days and that's it to see what would happen to his body? Don Gorski was in that movie. And if you recall, if you ever saw that movie, and I think it's on Netflix, if you haven't seen it, you can go watch. Gorski is a skinny guy. 
He weighs 190 pounds. He says his cholesterol is 165. I don't know if that's good or bad. I assume that's good or else he wouldn't mention it because if his cholesterol was awful and he'd been eating Big Macs every day, he probably isn't boasting about it. But I guess cholesterol of 165 is probably pretty good. But his doctor says that he's really healthy. I don't know. I don't know. I, I cannot fathom for the life of me spending my entire life eating the same thing. I just for just for the the sake of trying some other things, go to Burger King, go to Wendy's, go to KFC, try a Subway, go with what's his name who got himself in trouble, but the guy who lost all Jared, the Subway. You know, have a lunch with Jared. He's in prison now. You might not want to go there and have lunch with him, but nonetheless, try something else. How horrible is it going to be at the end of his life when he's sitting there on his deathbed? Apparently not for a while because he's really healthy, but when he's on his deathbed and he thinks, you mean there were other things that you could eat other than Big Macs? There were other foods out there? There were other tastes and other... What a, what a what an interesting, interesting thing. But again, I go back, who counts their burgers? I mean, I can't tell you in the last... No, I don't eat them a lot. I don't go out to fast food place, places a lot, but even in the past month, I could not tell you with any certainty how many burgers I've eaten. It might be two. I mean, fast food burgers. I might've had one or two on the barbecue at home, but maybe two, maybe three. How many burgers have you had in the last year? Any idea? Anybody? No, I, he has got this down to a number and he just walks in now, I guess. You know what's going to happen one day? What's, he is going to walk into his big, to his McDonald's one time after every day for 46 years. And they just, he walks in and they just plop the Big Mac on the counter because they know what he's coming for. He's going to say, you know... I think I'll try a junior cheeseburger today. And the people there, they're all going to die. They're all going to fall over and die right there of shock when this guy does something else. 30,000 Big Macs. I've watched that show, the one on TLC about the people who try to lose all the weight. The, the really, really large people. They're looking at this. You know what? People like that, they're looking at this right now going, are you kidding me? 190 pounds, 30,000 Big Macs. Try something else today. Try something else today. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.